Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Patricia Lustig. Patricia is an internationally recognised practitioner and writer in foresight, strategy development, future thinking and innovation. She uses foresight, horizon scanning and futures tools to help organisations develop insight into emerging trends and make better decisions for now and the future. Her intention is to help people make better decisions for today and for the future of all stakeholders in the system, the planet and its flora and fauna, our children and their children. Patricia wants to make a difference. Welcome to FuturePod, Patricia. Thank you. So first question, Patricia, for the guests to tell their story. So what is the Patricia Lustig story of how you became a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, it's interesting because I, I studied STEM. I have a, my first degree was in um, quantitative methods, so that's applied math and computing science. Yep. This is a very long time ago in the 70s. Then I went on to study mechanical engineering. I didn't get a degree, but I did a lot of the background work. And I worked in the field of IT for many years. And I got a bit bored with engineering problems because, generally speaking, there was a solution. There was less <laughs> of a solution, generally speaking. Um, we might not always see it. There was less of a solution when the problems involved people. So I'm doing a, yeah. a, an IT project, and the problem is not a technical problem. The problem is a problem between people, and that fascinated me. So I'm self-taught on all of that, but I began to work in the field of helping people make change, of OD, and I had quite a long career in OD working for people like Motorola and BP in OD. And I started to look at, well, we've got change. How do we help people change? And I could not see a way to do that without looking at the future. I don't believe in the stick side. I think you need to have a carrot. Yep. You can't really convince people to change. If they don't want to change, they won't, and you won't have organizational change. So the successful stuff, you've got to talk about potential futures. And I realized very quickly on that there wasn't one future and no one could predict. I, I, I knew that. And I started reading. I am <laughs> self-taught. And I read a lot. I read all sorts of things. I mean, from the OD side, I learned about systems thinking. And then I started looking at all sorts of different tools one could use for futures. In 1995, Motorola asked me to study uh, scenario planning with GBN, which I did. And that just opened up this huge new playing ground for me about what else could I do. And I just kept doing that sort of stuff because I can't see anybody who will do change without a view of what will come out of it. And that's a view of the future. And I'm also extremely pragmatic. I'm originally Dutch. I'm still Dutch. And 
That means I was always asking those difficult questions. What's in it for me? What's it for? There is no point in doing something and spending time and money on it if there isn't an outcome that's going to be beneficial for someone. And hopefully for the people that you want to do the change, there's got to be something in it for them. So that kind of started me along that process. And when I left BP, BP went through one of their cycles. So OD was in and then OD was out. And I wasn't up for being an HR manager and I hadn't the training for it. They had strategy. I was doing strategy and OD, and they had that under HR. Go figure. Uh, but I wasn't up for being an HR manager, so I started working for myself. And I've worked with lots of different colleagues, and I ended up doing futures and foresight and coming up with really interesting ways, adapting tools. And it's just really exciting because people don't realize how much of a influence we actually have on the future. Most people, mm. you know, you can, not making a choice is also making a choice. Let's put it that way. And if we got more people considering different futures and a plan A, B, C, and D, and we trained more people in this kind of thinking, you know, it's like a muscle, the foresight muscle. Let's use the foresight muscle. I think we'd make better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So about when was this move from BP to being a, a solo well, I, practitioner? I'm not a sole practitioner. I have a company and there are other people in it. But I've been in the company on and off doing all sorts of things, usually around change initially um, since 1990. But BP, I left BP in 2006. And from that point on, my practice and the company was very much focused on foresight, strategic foresight, making better decisions and making better decisions for the short and the long term. And I suppose now you've got a chance, obviously, because I think, as we said in our conversation before we came on, that you know, organizational development has got its own rich suite of tools and practitioners. And then, of course, you then moved into another sandbox with another set of practitioners and tools. What were, what were some of the connections you made between the two practice spaces? Well, it's, to me, they're just, they're part of the same. But it's very, very interesting that practitioners on one side tend to, you know, not even know about practitioners on the other. <laughs> you know, it's really, really interesting. And so many of the future's pieces of work are you come in, you do your scenarios with us, future scenarios, however you get to them, and we might or might not do something with that. But as futurists, we're not normally employed for the implementation stage. Right, right. And that's something I love doing as well. But there aren't, you don't get OD practitioners, generally speaking, and maybe I just don't know the right people who do foresight and you don't get very yeah, right. many people who are in foresight who do that implementation stuff. And and another thing okay. is you've got kind of specialists and you don't get very often people who have had, um, I don't know what the word is in English. So I've been an OD person in organizations, but I've also been on the business end. 
So I've also been producing products and running projects. And so I've had the experience of what it's like to be running a business in the business, whatever that business is, mm-hmm. as well as doing the kind of consultancy strategy implementation side of things. And there's not many of those people. So around who were some of the people as you started to integrate foresight in with your other skill set? Who were some of the people that, that kind of, yeah, were important to you in how you developed your sort of hybrid practice? Well, you've got Wendy Schultz, who is the person who likes shiny new things and introduces me to all sorts of shiny new things. And I love that. <laughs> I love that. That is absolutely brilliant because we together have developed ways to run some of these tools quicker because clients don't want to spend the money or the time doing things. So how could we do Pareto and get 80% out in a short amount of time? And I would have said Richard Hames is somebody who I've known for a very long time and asks me questions that really make me think. I think we do that for each other, frankly, but, you know, he'll say something and I'll go, wow, that, yes, I I need to go away and think about that. And that's really, really quite good. He stretches your brain, doesn't he, Richard? He does. And last, but definitely not least, is Jill Ringland, my co-author on three books, and we're working on a fourth, and my writing partner, uh, who wrote the, I think, seminal scenario planning back in the 90s. Uh, And we worked together at ICL. And uh, again, it's because of being a thinking partner and pushing my thinking. She loves to play devil's advocate. And being interested in everything, trying new things out. And it's great fun to write together. And we truly do write together because we construct sentences together. It's um, I've never worked with somebody like that when I've been writing together. But, you know, I have so many colleagues that I've had wonderful conversations with, I, you know, and a lot of them are in APFs, a few are in WFSF. I mean, I'm not an academic futurist. I'm a practitioner and a practical futurist. So I lack some of that academic stuff in the background, but it doesn't mean I don't write papers. It just means that I don't mm, very no. often write peer-reviewed ones. It certainly hasn't stopped your writing. No. Let's go to second question then, the the one where I encourage the guests to get under a bonnet and talk about the methods and tools they use and explain how they use them and why they use them the way they do. So what do you want to talk to the listeners about, Drisha? Well, there are actually two tools because I never pay attention to the rules anyway, I don't think. And one of them I know has been discussed before, which is Three Horizons. And we use an expanded version where if we're looking 30 years into the future, we look 60 years into the past to help people learn how to recognize patterns and watershed moments. So that when you're going, you start with that so that when you go and look at the future, you might recognize something going forward. And just really quickly, one of the real strengths of that tool for us has been that people have difficulty sometimes understanding what strategy is. And this can be at quite high levels in in organizations. And if you use Three Horizons, people get it. It's just, oh, oh, 
Is that what it is? I mean, I've had people say it. And for that, it's just a really wonderful tool because it, you get so many ahas out of it. So I, I do love using it. Yes, it's a very popular tool. It, I mean, Andrew Carey sort of said, look, it's more than three lines on a paper, obviously. Yeah, and But it is a tool that you can use with almost any audience depending on their level of sophistication about how they think about time, change, the whole sort of notion of disruption or, as I said, it's a, it's a very, very flexible tool to work and talk with a client. I think it's a great tool to put in front of someone and talk across. Yes, and it works across cultures, which is really important. Right, yep. You know, I mean, you may need to be a little bit different in your explanation, but people get it relatively easily. So you like to start with three horizons. That's that's kind of where you start. Is that where you kind of start or start to get them into the conversation of that is of one of the one of the starting points in the whole futures process. But the one that I think people would be most interested in is an ending point in as much as the futures mm. process ends, it's an iterative process. An ending point which is the tool of appreciative inquiry. It is American. It means inquiry with an N I N rather than an E N. Enquiry is what we would call it here in the UK. There is a difference. At any rate, um <laughs> at any rate the the tool itself helps you find out what your resources are. You've, you've looked at the change that you need to make. So I, you, you would use appreciative inquiry when you had gone through your scenarios process, however you make your scenarios, and you'd stress tested your strategy or your policies or whatever that was. And now it's time to start the implementation process. So you want to know what resources you have, what resources you might need, and you want to, you need to, uncover the energy for change. Because if there's no energy mm. for change, it will not happen. And appreciative inquiry is a tool that allows you to discover that and starts the change happening almost by itself. So talk to more about how you uncover the organization's energy for change. So it starts with defining the question you want to answer, and that is a really important piece of the puzzle. You have to ask the right question, whatever it is. You know, um, I've used this in all, I used it in BP, I've used it in rural development in villages across Asia. And the question has to be, key and you need all the people who have skin in the game or at least representatives from all the different stakeholders who have skin in the game in the room with you when you do them. You can do appreciative inquiries with a small group or you can do it with thousands. In Nepal, we did it with hundreds. A colleague of mine has done it on Aruba with 60,000 people out of a population of 100,000. Wow. It, it, you can self-generate. You help it grow. It is an iterative process, like like the whole futures process is. So you define the question you want to ask. And in 
a village, just imagine, because this is simple, to give an example, just imagine you have a village of sort of probably illiterate peasant farmers. Question is, what kind of a village do you want for your children and your grandchildren? That's the real question. And the next thing is to go and discover what resources you have, what your strengths are. So you discover the best of what is, and you ask questions around that, and people interview each other. And then you can do a quick and dirty one, or you can do one that takes longer, and you can have kids going around and interviewing grandparents and people interviewing all the stakeholders and bring that in to the group and share, and you know what you can build upon. That's what discovery is about. The next piece is to do the visioning, what they call dream in AI speak, but it's all jargon. It's visioning. You say, these are the resources we have. These are the successes we have. What could we build upon it? Bearing in mind, we've got this question, what kind of a village do we want for our children and grandchildren? What could we build upon it? And we discovered through the work that we did in Nepal that getting people to draw pictures and not write opens up a different side of their brain. And it was very interesting to do this in, you know, a mature economy and with people who are educated who don't want to draw, they want to write. And we say, no, no, you must draw because it's about visioning. (laughs) It's about visioning, but I can't draw. Tough. Stick men and women is fine. Tough. Yeah. And it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful what comes out. And, you know, you do it in small groups together and then you pull it together and you have a big group and together you assemble that vision of what could be. And then you look, you take it down. So it's converging and diverging, right? Yep. So the next step. I mean, the thing I have appreciated inquiry when I was doing it a long, long time ago, but what I brought into futures was I was taught out of Peter Checkland's soft systems method, what he calls rich picturing, mm-hmm. and using, you know, the cat wow of, you know, who are the clients, who are the actors, who are the owners, what's the transformation and that kind of stuff. And again, the same thing with people. You 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 have to draw the rich picture. You can't give me dot points. Indeed. And and you have to tell the story about it. It's also about narrative. Yes. And then you say, okay, so here's where you're going to decide, you're going to find the energy for change. You say, what should we do? You know, what are the things out of this that we should do, and what's the order that we do them in, and what obstacles might we encounter, what problems or challenges are there, and how might we overcome them? And you start to get more into detail. So it's still, and I'm not sure should is the right word, but it's the kind of things that we ought to do or we think are right. And the final piece is what we call delivery. So it's what will we do? And that's a piece where people stand up and say, I will do this. And I will do it by when. And I need help. If I've got help, I can do that. And what's the help I need? So this is kind of a bargaining place where we barter away who's going to do what and how and when. But it's only what people have the energy for. You can't make somebody do it. And so you will know at that point in time what you can do. Now, it's an iterative process. It means that the next time you meet and you have to set up a time to meet, you go through the process again. This time, the discovery at the beginning is around what have you done since we last met? 
You can't stand up and say, I didn't do it. You can't. You're not allowed. You have to stand up and say, this is what I've learned. And then you revisit the vision. Is this still right? Do we need to add? Do we need to subtract? And then you visit the plan. Okay, what's our next steps? And then you go back to delivery of the next pieces. And there's a monitoring piece in there as well, because you keep checking the vision against the question. You can even be asking, is this still the right question? Does that make sense? Yeah. And this is still action inquiry in the sense that people are learning to both do the work, but also inquire about the work. They're still, they're still doing the action and still continuing to do inquiry as they're doing the work. Indeed. And if initially it's facilitated, but after a few cycles, people can do it themselves. They understand the process. They've taken the process over. And this happens in villages with illiterate peasants. They will take it over and run with it because it works. But part of that in going through the cycle the second time is questioning, seeing what we've learned, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. So it's a constant sort of an OD speak, plan, do cycle. We keep planning, doing, we keep, in a sense, prototyping, maybe. Yeah, that's right. And again, still inquiring, still appreciating, to some extent, possibly building on success. Yeah, still building on success. Now, you did say when you presented this to a group of Foresight people at one of the APF events that people were kind of blown away and they obviously you were saying they probably hadn't heard of it or didn't know that it existed as a method for them. I'm not sure that's the case. I think many of them had heard of it, but they hadn't seen how it really worked. They experienced what it was like. And, you know, yep. we, in, in the hour that we had, we could only do interview each other on success. But it just, it galvanized people. It yeah. brings energy. It is a generative process. Yes. If people wanted to know more about either appreciative inquiry or that kind of thing, I mean, are there resources that, that are actually there for people if they do want to learn a bit more about it? Well, they can read my book, Strategic Foresight, because it's in there. But there is a resource called uh, the Appreciative Inquiry Commons, AI Commons. And there's a lot of case studies and there's a lot of materials there. I think it's affiliated with Case Western Reserve University because the person who developed Appreciative Inquiry was David Cooper Ryder. It's his dissertation research in OD, and he's with Case Western Reserve. Yeah, there'll be a, on your website with this podcast, we'll have some links to that for people if they're interested. Let's go question three, Patricia, the one where I inquire, I ask the, the guest to if not put down their professional expertise, expert perspective, but just as a member of the human race, how does Patricia Lustig make sense of the emerging futures around her or whether it's your community or whichever frame you wish to place? But how do you make sense and what are you sensing of the emerging futures around you? Well, we certainly live in interesting times at the moment, don't we? And in watershed moments, pre-COVID and post-COVID are very different 
things indeed. I mean, as a futurist, I do horizon scanning every day. Uh, and that that's yep. part of it. But I am incredibly curious and I love learning. And so I'm always poking my nose into things to see what's going on and reading all sorts of stuff. I also read history because part of what is useful is to understand when you see a pattern unfolding, being, you know, pattern recognition, looking at what's happening now and trying to figure out which way a trend may go. Uh, so I, I just read an awful lot and I talk to colleagues. And I've been very lucky to be on a couple of really interesting projects. I've usually got a, a few every year. They don't usually pay terribly well, but things like with the EC looking at research and innovation and what that's going to be like 40, 20, in 2040. And these are things that make you think. So the discussions we have as a team, the writing up of the scenarios, the considering what it means, I, I think. That's how I do it. And I think I would probably hmm. do a part of that, even if I didn't do this work, because I've always been interested in what's going on. I also write. And when you write, you have to be very, very clear about what you want to say. Hmm. So, you know, what things around you are getting your attention? Uh, you know, what things, if you, you know, are you curious about? What, you know, what sort of things have really got your, got, got your interest at the moment? Well, I'm just watching what's happening around the world as the world tries to come to grips with COVID. It is fascinating. Some of it's scary. We don't yet know what's going to happen. I think mm. there's a lack of transparency and people are afraid, people in power and government are afraid to say what's really going on and to say when they don't know. And I don't, that I find fascinating to watch. And there's not enough really good, here's what's happening, here's what we don't know, here's what we know, information out there. It's it's very hard to siphon off the good stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah. We've been doing a series of special COVID short interviews with previous guests. And one of the things that one of our guests just said was she has heard more of our language being used by leaders from time to time. In other words, people now are talking about having done scenarios, having looked at what the possible futures are, having talked about uncertainties. She has certainly picked up that, if not the whole the whole box and dice, but it, but at least this notion of the uncertainty and the emergence is starting to creep into some of the conversations. That's true. And I think that's also very interesting. Uh, there's so much, you know, what do you pick? But life is always uncertain. This is not any different. It's just far more in everyone's faces than it normally is. Hmm. You know, these uncertainties, we face them about many things. I mean, we can look at climate change and say, how uncertain are we? There are some things we are very certain about and others that we don't know anything about. It's the same with COVID. COVID seems to be, because it can kill you, <laughs> rather more in people's faces. Yeah. It kill you in the short term as opposed to the slightly longer term, which is what climate change will do. That's right. Yeah, and there is the human fear of disease, which obviously goes back any student of history would know that, you know, diseases and pandemics especially have been pivotal in in history. And those things things have changed dramatically through pandemics. 
Well, it's very, very interesting because the book, the last book that was published was um, Megatrends and How to Survive Them that I wrote with Jill Ringland. And every single trend we looked at, we added pandemics to it. We said, these are certain. What is uncertain is the timing. I have never done a scenario set that didn't include pandemics. So why are people so surprised? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm not unique in this. I don't think any futurist worth their salt would not include pandemics. So it's just, you've got to laugh. You couldn't make it up. Hmm. Yes. I was talking to Sahail Intuller um, about a week ago, and he was personally enjoying the fact that his world of being on airplanes and zipping around has stopped for him. And he actually, he is certainly looking at this pause, because it is a long pause that has actually seemed to have forced people to, if not take stock of where they are, but at least has given them a chance to pause and think about things. Well, I've got a mate who uh, travels the world on fintech, and he said, you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. He's got three platinum cards with, uh, you know, air miles. I'm not going to do it anymore. I actually like being around my children Mm. and my wife. Mm. And You know, I mean, for somebody like me, it's not that different. Mm. I didn't, by choice, I didn't travel that much. And I'm still doing the work I like. I just am doing an awful lot of it virtually. But I still get to do what I like. And I think I'm very lucky in that. Okay, so a curious person is thinking and and paying attention to more than just COVID. So what other things are on the horizon that are interesting? I mean, I'm watching the world move from what used to be what I would call probably unipolar to moving to a polynodal world as the center of gravity shifts back towards the east. Mm. You know, if you look, read history, it started there and it's now on its way back. <laughs> very, very yes. interesting, fascinating to watch. And, and um, you know, it's difficult because we sit with our mindset. I cannot help that I was brought up here in Europe. I cannot help that I have that Western mindset, if you want to call it that, mature economy mindset. And I try very hard to get around it, but I can't, not totally. So understanding people with a different mindset is fascinating and frustrating, and we need to do it, and challenging. You know, and I have a Victor Moti, he's been he's been fabulous because he pokes me in the right place to make me uncomfortable and think about it. Yes, I just did an interview with Victor and he told me all about the integral futures of Persian philosophy. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Yes, I, I reviewed his book. So I had to read it yep. rather more tightly than I would have done if I just picked it up. And it, it's fascinating. and if it's at all possible to put, try to put someone else's glasses on, it's a fascinating, different play space, you see. Next question, Patricia, the one where I ask, this used to come up for me when I was teaching people futures and foresight. 
how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? This is one I struggle with a lot, as I think most of us do. I think that what I do and what I would say to somebody who wanted to know is I help people make sense of the world to anticipate how things might develop and make better decisions now and in the long term. I help them to understand what you can assume about the future and what you can't. So in a sense, if you are looking at uncertainty, what is truly uncertain and what you can do something about, where you have influence. So at the end of the day, we have better decisions both for whoever you are or your organization, but also for all your stakeholders, which includes the planet. That's the elevator speech. If it's not in an elevator and a person then leans forward and says, tell me more of how you do that. If a person shows interest and a person shows you know, genuine inquiry, do you go deeper than that? Of course, because I love this stuff. It's, I would say it's about developing your foresight muscle. It's about thinking hmm. about what are potential different futures, good and bad, and how might we get there? If we can think of our vision, our perfect future, our preferred future, how would we get there from here? What are the different things that we might face, challenges, obstacles, and how would we overcome them? That's about where, it's a jargon word, sorry, where we have agency. Where is, how do you identify where your energy for change is? How do you make change exciting? And that's about identifying the future that you want to work towards. And, you know, then people will ask questions about whatever it is that interests them to go into more detail about it. If someone responds the other way to either clearly uh, suggest that that sounds like snake oil or whatever, um, if there's a kind of push back against the notion of people being able to create a preferred future, if you wanted to engage with such a person, apart from just walk away, what might you do in that situation? You have to understand, I would want to understand why they said that. I mean, you, you've got people who are pushed so hard to be short-term and they have no time for anything else. And then you know that mm. there's not a lot you can do to help. You need to understand why they're saying that. That's a difficult one, Peter. Oh, yeah, it's, you it know, is I, hard. I, just, I mean, it without, is... The most... Most of the people I've encountered who have said, well, I, I don't believe that, have been coming at it from, I don't have time to think that. I need to do short-term stuff because that's what I'm being pushed to do. And I can't, yep. I can't influence. And that's, yep. there's not a lot you can do with somebody like that because, I mean, I suppose you could suggest coaching and work with them on coaching to find, to create little windows where they could do something, even if it's only in personal space. If there's yeah. no will, they're not going to do it. It's it's this whole thing about change. Look for the customer for change. If there is no customer for change, there is no change. There is no change, yes. If this isn't helpful for a person at a particular point in their life, perhaps you walk away because to stay there is not going to help. Indeed. Well, and I'll walk away from something where I think they're just going to put it on the shelf. 
There's no point in doing foresight unless you do something with it. Because it's a lot of work. Interesting, yeah. exciting, sure. But what's the point of doing it if you do nothing with it? Yeah, I was always loath to work with people who were in leadership situations where they were trying to change other people. And always the question was, do the people actually you want to change actually want to change themselves? Indeed. The only organizational change that is successful and sustainable is change where everyone is involved in deciding what the change will be and implementing it. So all the stakeholders are part of that discussion. And yes, it's a strategic discussion. But, you know, if you do that and you do it well, it kickstarts and practically runs on its own. Right. And that's the essence of appreciative inquiry to put the stakeholders in the room, isn't it? It is. It is. And I've run meetings where I've had people saying, oh, I'm HR. Why am I here? (laughs) Because you're part of this company. (laughs) I'm sorry. I've had the same from finance. So, you know, it's not, it's just a particular group. It's not picking on HR. Please, I don't do that. No, no. Let's go to our last question, which is the open question. What do you want to talk to the listeners about for your last question? I'd like to encourage people to use the foresight muscles. And, you know, that means stretching your thinking. One of the great things about being a futurist is you get to read science fiction. Oh, wow. Yes. I think that's fabulous. I love it. And you watch science fiction and you pick the bits out. What are the bits you pick out? Well. Maybe the bits that interest you. Maybe bits that speak to you because of something you see today. There's work that Tom Lombardo is doing about the history of science fiction. He is. And when science fiction is written, it's a product of its time. And that's fascinating to see. Absolutely fascinating. You know, what are people's visions? And people, some people find it different, difficult. If people would like to learn more about strategic foresight, in particular for non-practitioners. I wrote a book about it that won an APF award, Strategic Foresight. And it talks about developing your foresight muscles and developing this way of thinking that stops closing things down and starts opening things up to possibility, to what's out there, because we cannot predict the future. That's the worrying thing, Peter. You were talking about more and more people saying scenarios and all these things. But in the same breath, they're talking about predicting what's going to happen or forecasting. And that's, we can't do that. It harms our thinking to think that we can. Real Miller talks about, for him, of course, the phrase that he's, uh, he's going on with at the moment, of course, is futures literacy, which at the core of that is our futures creativity our ability to imagine wide-ranging different futures. Well, and there's a piece that we call, and this may even be from some of Riel's work, we call anticipatory awareness. Hmm. Awareness of how things might move. Awareness of what signals do I need to be looking for to say we're going one way or another, or a particular trend is moving one way or another. Because that tells you what you might need to do about it. And, of course, a study of the past 
doesn't predict the future, but sometimes the future rhymes with the past. Yes. I mean, I think the way I use it is what patterns do you see in the past and are they repeating now and what could that mean? Because just because the pattern is repeating now doesn't mean we're going to get the same outcome. No. What outcome might we get, bearing in mind what we did last time? And it might be the same. I I don't know. But it helps you ask yourself questions that, again, open up to possibility, whatever it might be. Possibility, whatever's going to happen is neither good nor bad. It's what we do with it. Hmm. Certainly, the um, the notion of the back cast or the notion of looking back years earlier does take away some of the hubris of people who say it's not going to be different. Because mm. if you look back at previous times, you find in the past people have had fundamental change dropped on their laps and have had to change everything they do. We are human beings, and human beings innovate and create and give us a problem and we'll go for it. That's what we are. That's right. Even a problem that we absolutely don't want to be in, we're actually in a problem. Therefore, we've got to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yes, we're going to see a lot of interesting creativity on the back of COVID as they try to open up economies as fast as they can because people are terrified at the thought that the economies aren't going to open up. Well, I mean, one of the big things, again, that we look at is what was very exciting for me was that more and more people were coming out of poverty and we were getting a middle class in places in Asia. And that was actually the motor of our growing economy. Now, that's been set back decades, most likely, because they don't have a safety net. And so being three or four months without work will push them down a level and into possibly poverty. But if not, you know, very much at the bottom of, I use um, Hans Rosling's levels of level one, two, three, and four, and it will push them into level one or two, the lower levels. And then it takes a long time to crawl out of that. And that was the engine of growth for the world. So I think things will be different. I think Mm. it's going to be a very long time before we hit the same level that we had before COVID, if that at all. And we're going to have a lot more people in poverty than we had. And that's very sad. Yes, we've also had some huge social experiments that we're running right in the middle of now, aren't we? (laughs) Things that people said we could never do, we are now doing. The ideology rule book got tossed out the window pretty quickly in a lot of countries, didn't it? It did, and and that's also interesting. I'm, I'm really curious to see whether it holds. I'm curious to see what stays the same and what changes. I mean, the collapse of the oil price, amazing. And what that's going to do to the energy transition and many other things, because we we live in a great big system of systems. So everything has interconnections with other things. I guess you would say that now is the perfect time to develop your foresight muscles because you would not have more possible, exciting, weird things going on around you if you can take some time to become aware of them. I would indeed. It's very in your face, as they say. I think it's an American thing, isn't it? It is. Well, thanks. Thanks, Patricia. It's been uh, been lovely to have a chat 
and thank you for taking some time out of your lovely days in the Lakes Districts and uh, to spend some time with the FuturePod community. You're most welcome. It was a pleasure. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.